Hello, church. My name is Jane, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no longer no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church, and thank you for uh, the appreciation. Um, it's always kind of awkward being appreciated in public, but um, I appreciate being appreciated. And uh, yeah, I just want to let you guys know, especially for those that are joining us online, welcome as well. But um, me and Pastor Eugene, we, got the, uh, we had the privilege to go to a preaching conference this, uh, this week. So just to warn you, today will be either a, a super long sermon um, really good or really bad, just there's going to be no in between, okay? Um, but uh, I just want to ask you, is there a time when you remember when um, someone you trusted did not keep their word and perhaps it still has an effect on you today? Um, and what kind of effect does it have on you? Is it, is it something pe- uh, positive, something negative? Well, when I was growing up, there was a show, a very popular show. Uh, it started in 1989, and some of you guys weren't even born then, but it was a show called America's Funniest Home Videos. And I didn't even know until I looked it up now, but it's still on TV. I didn't even know that. I thought it ended like 15 years ago. Uh, but America's Funniest Home Videos, if you guys do not know what it is, uh, is a show basically, it was, it was like Instagram, Reddit, TikTok, and YouTube before those things existed. It was a, a show where people from all over the United States would uh, submit their home videos to, uh, you know, Bob Saget or Danny Tanner, uh, rest in peace, and, and he would show these videos of funny moments or funny instances that happen or, or uh, you know, things that are caught on camera at home videos and, and people would show it and at the end there would be a winner and they would win about, a, you know, a sum of money. And it was, uh, it was hilarious. It was a time when maybe most of America would gather together as a family and sit down and watch this show together. And I remember thinking, I need a, a camcorder. Now, if you guys don't know what a camcorder is, it's this giant box that you had to put upon your shoulder 
And then on top of that, you had to find a, a, a huge rectangular uh, cassette that you put in, and you're able to record like maybe two hours of something. You know, now we have phones, but back in the day, you actually had to buy this huge device. And I was like nine years old, and I was like, I need a camcorder because I, I see funny things all the time. And I need to be able to record it. And I, so I went to my dad, and I was like, Dad, I need to buy a camcorder. And he's like, what the heck? Like, why, why do you need a camcorder? And so I made him sign a contract. I said, you know, like, I, I wrote his name, like, Chun Song promises that on Jay's 10th birthday, he will buy a, a camcorder for his birthday. So I, I made him sign it. I, I posted it on the refrigerator. And that, that contract, you know, it, it was like Ariel's contract with Ursula. It lasted on that refrigerator for an entire year. And then on my birthday, I was like, I, I was, dude, dad, you gotta buy me a camcorder. And he was like, Ugh. and that was it. I, and, and then one day I woke up and that paper was gone. I was like, what the heck? You know, he was like, you know, I was like, even Trident couldn't break that contract with Ursula and Ari, you know what I'm talking, anyways. Um, but it was gone and I remember, I was like, what the heck? Like my dad, who is supposed to be my dad and never lies, he, he reneged on, on, his, on his contract, on his word. And I was like, you know, it affected me. I was like, what the heck? Like, who can I, if I can't trust my dad, who can I trust? You know, like the person I'm supposed to trust with my entire life, if I can't even trust him at his word, then who can I trust? And I'm sure uh, as many of you have grown up to be adults now, there were probably moments in your life where you've experienced uh, maybe a person, uh, maybe something where you thought that you could absolutely trust them, but then you realized that you couldn't. Um, and as, as trustworthy as someone might be, that they are not 100% trustworthy, uh, that there might be little things said or little things done uh, that might show that, you know, we're, we're all fallen, we're all, in, you know, uh, human beings by nature. And so one of the things that I realized as I grew up in life, and I'm sure you guys have as well, that um, we, we start developing a defense mechanism or, or we start understanding it through discernment that there are some things that will be trustworthy there will be some people who will be more trustworthy than others and others who will not be as reliable, maybe other people who are not as dependable. And I think that understanding also bleeds into how we discern or how we perceive things like religion or things like spirituality or things like what, it's, what are said in Scripture and in the Bible. And today what we're going to talk about is a story of really um, the reliability or, or the dependability or the unimpeachable power of God's Word. That everything that he says, everything that, he, that is written down, everything that was communicated through his prophets and through Jesus Christ, his son, that no matter how outrageous or, or how incredible the claims or the words might be, that we have a God, a Savior, a Messiah that we can trust with our complete being. And so as we read this story and as we go about this story, we're really going to see what it looks like to be able to trust in the word of God. And just like the, and the different levels or the different types of belief that are described in scripture and the, and the type of belief that we should be striving after. And lastly, we're going to see how God proves himself, the power and effectiveness of his word. That when his word goes out, that it always comes back exactly achieving the purpose in which he speaks. So first, we're going to talk about the trust, uh, what it means to trust God at his word. Now, as we read this story, it's really a story about the desperation of a father. Now, I don't know about you, but what are you willing to do to save the life of someone that you truly love? Perhaps your parents or perhaps your, your spouse or perhaps your siblings or a close friend or, or your children. 
Now, about a year and a half ago, uh, my son Isaac was dealing with a neurological disorder called PANDAS, and it was an absolutely one of the most difficult times in my life, uh, and, and also my wife. And uh, I shared about this condition previously, but for those that may be unfamiliar with it, uh, this disorder, this disorder uh, is an illness that affects the brain in such a way that the behavior of your child becomes unrecognizable almost overnight. Now, for my son Isaac, the effects of this disorder uh, happen in stages, but soon uh, his tics were followed by a debilitating anxiety, uh, OCD, um, outbursts of rage, and, and a deep fear of, of being in any new or all uh, environments and, and situations. And at first, uh, dealing with this uh, was, uh, we had no idea what me and my, you know, we, our, our family was dealing with, and we had no idea what was going on with him. Um, the initial diagnosis of Tourette's uh, gave us a momentary hope of thinking, oh, perhaps we now know the genesis or, or the reason why he's acting this way, but soon we found that uh, it was probably something else. And there were many days and nights where um, Isaac would be completely struggling mentally, uh, and his condition uh, was, was really just deteriorating. And, and I was left thinking and praying, like, God, if there's anything that I can do, anything that I can trade, anything that I can give up, uh, make it known, and, and I'll do it. You know, and, and it's like anything. And literally, if you've ever been in that situation, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Like if God came to me and said, you need to give up golf for the rest of your life, I would have done it right then and there. If he said that I would have to throw away my phone and never, and delete all my apps, I, I would have done it. I would have been off of social media and off, my, off the internet entirely. Uh, if it meant that I would have to give up uh, meat, I would have been a vegan, like literally instantaneously. I would have eaten just locusts and honey for the rest of my life. If, if God said, you need to become a warrior fan and denounce Lakers, I would have done it right then and there. And, and, and it was this type of desperation, uh, and probably even more so, that the royal official uh, uh, that he is experiencing as he goes and seeks Jesus of Nazareth, because he had heard the news he had heard the rumors. He had heard of all the miracles and the healings and the, um, the, the, the signs and wonders that this man from Nazareth was doing, that, that he was someone extraordinary, that he was perhaps a prophet of God, and that there was nothing that he couldn't achieve. So this official, this royal official, someone who probably had a very high-ranking uh, title in the land of Judea, uh, he goes and seeks out this carpenter from Nazareth. Now, this royal official, he was living in Capernaum at the time. Jesus was uh, in Cana. It's about a 20, 25-mile um, distance between the two. So if you're walking, you know, for some it might take four, four hours. For others, it might take six hours. But it was roughly a, a pretty significant distance to travel. And this royal official takes the time and takes the day to go and seek out this prophet, this teacher, this miracle worker. He goes and he encounters this man, he finds him and he asks him to come to Capernaum with him because his son is ill to the point of death. Now, it's interesting because when you see the response of Jesus, uh, it, it is a response that maybe perhaps we would not expect. You know, uh, and, and as, a, you know, as a pastor or even just a non-pastor, there are moments when people come to you and, and they might uh, give you a request, right? Um, they might tell you something intimate about their lives or something that they're struggling with. And, and the natural human thing to do is to respond in empathy, right? If someone came to me and said, hey, Jay, like, I'm struggling, my, my wife's struggling or someone is really sick, I would have been like, oh, man, that sucks. 
like, you know, I'll pray for you. You know, I'm not very good at empathizing on stage, but you know what I mean. I would, I would have said something nice, you know. Uh, and, and this is what you would expect from our Lord and Savior. This royal official takes the time to travel many miles, goes in absolute desperation, because you have to understand, for a man of this magnitude, in his status, his power, his wealth, he had every type of modern medicine of the time at his disposal. And for him, he must have actually, you know, exhausted every resource, every type of, 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 of medicine or shaman or anything that was available to him. He must have gone through it all, and now he was at his wit's end, unable to do anything to save the life of his son. So he goes and seeks out this prophet, this teacher, this miracle worker, and says, come with me, for my son is gravely ill to the point of death. And Jesus responds, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. Almost as a rebuke. Almost as kind of like, hey, you're only here because you want something from me. And this man again reiterates, please come with me for my son is ill to the point of death. And Jesus responds to him and says, go, your son will live. Now, a, a better translation of that phrase, he literally says, go, your son lives. As if to say that the very moment that he spoke those words, that he had healed his son. Now, when we see this encounter, what we see in, just kind of in between the lines is that this man who comes with good intentions, this man who comes from absolute desperation, hoping that Jesus would be able to heal his son, in a way that he may not even realized, was limiting the power of God. He thought that the only way that his son could be healed was that he would have to come in person, lay his hands upon his son to heal him of his illness. But Jesus not only shows the trustworthiness of his words, but he shows that his power is not bound by the limits of time and space of, of this earth. With just his mere words, he says, go, your son lives. And I think for a lot of us, especially for those that have grown up in church or perhaps for those um, that have been Christian for a long time, um, we, we are kind of like this man in that we are willing to trust Jesus and his words and the words of scripture up to a certain point. And especially here in the Bay Area where we are a little bit more educated, maybe a little bit more STEM focused, we have this kind of a, a, a block or, or, or a ceiling about how miraculous or, or how, how powerful God's word actually is. And we place unintentional or maybe intentionally limits upon his power and his words. And that's what this man was doing. He, in his mind, was bound by the limits of time and space. And he believed that the only way that his son can be healed was if Jesus would come with him to his home in Capernaum to lay his hands and heal him. But Jesus blows the, the top off of that assumption. And with just mere words, he says, go, your son lives. How often do we place limits upon the power of God's word? How often do we stifle the ability and, and the, uh, just the, the sheer magnitude of how God can work in our lives? And so this man, in a way, 
takes God at his word. It says that he, he believed Jesus, right? And this word believed is, is, is very dif, dis, uh, different from the, the uh, of a saving belief. It was just a belief in the, in the sense that he took Jesus at his word, right? And, and in a way, he, in, in, quite, in pure desperation, he had no other choice. So he goes back home. And when he goes home, he sees that his servants are, are headed towards him to tell him the good news that your son is alive and well. And so this royal official asks him, at what hour, what hour did he get better? Because he's thinking like, wait a second, this is a miracle beyond even my imagination. I went there seeking healing, but I didn't imagine healing in this type of way. So he says, what hour? And they say, at the seventh hour, your son's fever left him. And then he realized that that was the very moment when Jesus spoke to him and said, go, your son lives. See, the limit that this man placed upon the power of Jesus, upon the power of the word of God, was completely destroyed as Jesus shows him the magnitude, the, the, the intensity, the, 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 the absolute power in which his words are completely reliable and dependable. That not only are we able to trust him at his word, but that his words are the very thing that saves us. And I think understanding that, we have to understand that there's really uh, kind of distinctions and, and levels to belief, right? And this leads to our second point, that there's really two ways of belief, right? And, and that we have to recognize that there's a difference between uh, believing with one of, of saving faith and believing with just a mere acknowledgement. James chapter 2, verse 19 says it very clearly and very plainly. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's a, a belief that is not, a, 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 you know, correlated with salvation. That demons even believe in who God is. But that there's a different type of belief. One that is a belief of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. That, and that is the type of belief that Jesus is after. So as you understand and are aware of the distinction between the belief that is pure acknowledgement and a belief that is one of saving faith, we see just John in the flow of these passages that are all intermingled and connected, really describing and showing us what it means for us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that we will have eternal life. And just kind of a reminder, the whole purpose of the book of John and the sermon series is to really... Uh, show us John chapter 20, right? And if John gives us the purpose of this book, that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing that we will have eternal life. It is not a belief of just mere acknowledgement and understanding, oh yeah, Jesus might be God. No, it is an, a, a belief of complete and utter dependence upon the Savior. And so John communicates this in a way that perhaps we may not really understand or realize unless we really look into the, the connections of these passages. So we kind of chose a, a, a segment of the passage that might seem disconnected. Right? We started in John chapter 4, verse 39, and that's the end of, of the story of the uh, Samaritan woman, Jesus' ministry in Samaria. Hello? Oh, wow, okay. I was like, oh, God's telling me to stop. Maybe not, okay. But it's, it, it's end, it, at the end of the story of the women at the well in Samaria where this sinner, this adulterous woman, 
encounters Jesus. She has an unbelievable encounter with, uh, with the Savior, the Messiah. She goes and tells all of her town folks, the very people who had ostracized her, she goes and tells all of the town folks that she had met the Messiah, come and see a man who has told me about everything in my life. And then in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then it says, so when the Samaritans came to him, he, uh, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And it says, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Their acknowledgement of who Jesus was was not that they were impressed by the words that he spoke. It was not just a, a confession that they believed that he was a miracle worker, a, a person who can uh, uh, share with them the intimacies of their lives, uh, uh, you know, like, like a fortune teller. No, they, what they saw and now what they experienced with their own eyes and with their own ears is that they heard the words of God coming from Jesus because he is the word of God. And they confess that he is the savior of the world. And these are coming from Samaritans, half-breeds, people whom the people of Israel believed were, were unclean. And then we move on in the passage, and then it says, verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was, has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So now what's the connection here? Well, first we see the Samaritans, half-breeds, people who are ostracized from the people of Judea, people who the Jewish people would say they are not real believers. They are not part of the covenant community of, of Israel. And yet they believe in Jesus, believe with a saving faith. Now Jesus goes back to his hometown of Galilee, right, the, the region of Galilee, and it says in parentheses, it says Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And you're like, well, then why are you going? He goes. And, and you would assume that the next words would be, and the Galileans were angry. They said, get out of here, you, you filthy animal. No, they said they welcomed him. They welcomed him because they saw the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So you're like, okay, this might be positive. But when we do a little bit of reference and we do a little bit of fact checking, we understand that this is not the case. In Luke chapter 4, we get a, a clear glimpse and a clear picture of the actual response of the people in Galilee towards what Jesus had to say about himself. And just to summarize what's going on, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the temple... And it is time for, for you know, uh, Jewish males to go up and read passages from the Old Testament. He comes to a point in the passage where he speaks from Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah. And he says, today these words are fulfilled. Basically, he's saying, I am, I am who Isaiah is talking about. And the people are still like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Then later he goes on and he says, he says this. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And then at this word, the people in Galilee were absolutely furious. 
They wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. They wanted to murder him. They drove him up to a cliff, and they wanted to throw him down because they believed that he was blaspheming. And Jesus somehow just kind of whoop, whoop, and just kind of escaped. We don't know how. Again, that's, that's okay, just think about that. A whole mob of people trying to murder you, and then he just kind of slipped through. You know, he's like the Jamie Foxx thing, if you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, again, I think that's miraculous. But anyways, get to the point of why. Why? See, when he said this, that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, what Jesus was referring to was this, that the cleansing that comes from the gospel of Jesus was not just for the people of Israel, but for the entire world. That even Gentiles like Naaman the Syrian would have access to the cleansing that comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. And for the people of Israel, this idea that a Gentile would be on the same level as the people of Israel was absolutely blasphemous. See, isn't it interesting that when they saw the miracles being performed by Jesus in Jerusalem at the feast, when they saw what they could get from this man, that it was something positive, that they had no problems welcoming him. Right? And, and isn't that like us? We'll welcome Jesus anytime we see him as a way to profit, as a way to benefit, as a way to receive blessings in our lives. But the very moment that Jesus speaks a word that does not align with their way of thinking, with their paradigm, or with their perspective, or the moment that Jesus speaks a word that no longer makes them the special people of Israel, they turn and they want to throw him off a cliff. And what this tells us is this, that even though the Galileans accepted and welcomed Jesus, their assumption that proximity with Jesus is all that is required for salvation was absolutely wrong. That more than just mere proximity, that there needs to be followed with belief and obedience of who he is. Now, many of us, you, may not, you might not like what I'm about to say. Many of us are just like the Galileans. We love we love to welcome Jesus when it benefits us. We love to welcome him and say, come into my life. You're promising eternal life? Sure, come on in. You're promising an escape from wrath and death and hell? Yes, I believe. Wait, you want me to stop this? Wait, you want me to live in this way? Wait, you want me to no longer focus on the success of my career? Wait, you want me to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Wait, you want me to think in this particular way about a very unpopular cultural uh, you know, narrative that is going on right now? Like, you want me to do what? No, you're not my Jesus. You're not the one that I'm willing to follow. And then what we see is the next passage, the healing of the royal official's son. So again, we see the Samaritans, their belief in the Savior. We see the Galileans. We see their unbelief in Jesus. 
And then we see the story of this royal official, his son who was healed. It seems like he was headed towards the way of the Galileans. He wanted Jesus to come. Jesus sends him away. And then ultimately what we see is that once he realizes and witnesses for himself the power of the word of God, that just by merely speaking, Jesus says, go, your son lives. It says that the father knew that at that hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. This word believe in verse 53 is slightly different from the word believe when he goes and trusts God at his word. This belief is a belief of faith. Faith in the salvation that only Jesus can provide. And so what ultimately John does in these three passages is he bookends and shows us what it means between the difference between saving faith and a, and a belief of just mere acknowledgement. And oftentimes, many of us, we kind of sit in the middle, sit in the middle of just acknowledgement and not real saving faith. Now, for time's sake, I told you preaching, preaching seminar, you know, I, I might go long. I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm going to go 1.5 speed here, Okay. And that leads us to uh, really our final point, the proof of the power of God's word. The reason why we can have a saving faith in the words spoken of, by Jesus is because he proves it. He proves it. Now, when we just look at the passage from verse 46 to 54, what we have is really John kind of um, insinuating or, or giving us a clue to what happened previously in chapter 2. He bookends Verse 46 and 54 with, with uh, um, the miracle that happened in chapter 2 in Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. Right? So it says in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. And then in verse 54 when he ends it says, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So now we know that um, Jesus did many other signs in Jerusalem and at the feast. So why does John refer to, why does he kind of link these two miracles together? Uh, the, the, you know, Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus healing the royal official's son. And, and I think one of the things that we have to understand is when we see kind of the details of what's going on, both happen in the same region uh, and both happen on a third day. Now, um, in, in chapter 2, it says that it was the third day of the wedding. Now, imagine, like, a wedding that lasts three days. Right? It's either going to be awesome or it's going to suck, right? But in this case, I guess it was really good because there was heavenly wine that was produced. But on the third day of the wedding, Jesus produces wine out of water. And then here, it says that after two days, he departed for Galilee. So that meant that on the third day of his trip in Galilee, he encounters this royal official son. So the commonality between these two miracles is that they both happen on the third day. And so on the third day, Jesus performs this sign. And now when the, uh, Jesus is about to perform the miracle in Cana, uh, it says they ran out of wine. Jesus' mother goes to Jesus and says, hey, we've run out of wine. And, and again, a weird response. It says, woman, what does that got to do with me? It almost sounds kind of rude. The royal official comes. Jesus, my son is sick. You come and heal him. He says, unless 
you see signs and wonders, this generation ain't going to believe. You know, it's like it's, it's a weird kind of response uh, to a normal request or normal question. And the reason why is because what Jesus is alluding to is, is something very different. Something that maybe none of the, the people in this time were expecting. When Jesus told his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In her mind, she was thinking just like, what, it's not your time to go get more wine? He's referring to the hour of his death and resurrection. And when this royal official comes to Jesus and says, please come and heal my son, and he says, unless people see signs and wonders, they will not believe. He's like, what are you talking about? Just come heal my son. But what Jesus was referring to was the signs and wonders of his death and resurrection. All happening on the third day. See, the proof of Jesus' dependability and reliability and power of his words come at the greatest event in all human history. That the Son of God would suffer a death just, just unimaginable of someone of that magnitude, the one who has created every single thing in this world, would come and suffer death at the hands of his own creation, and then on the third day, he would perform the greatest miracle, the greatest sign and wonder that humanity has ever and will ever see when he defeats death and raises and rises again from the dead. And that is the very proof of the power of the word of God. Points really just to the fact that we as people who profess and confess our faith in him, that if we truly believe and understand the magnitude of that evidence, of that reality that Jesus rose again from the dead, that it would push us to live a life of, of perfect obedience, of striving for perfect obedience to the very things that he promises and commands in the word. So I'm going to leave you guys with just a quick application. What we see here in Jesus is also an example that he is willing to go and obey the word of God, even though in earthly or human um, ways, it may seem that what God is asking for is that he's asking for us to go towards failure. Right? Jesus, when he goes back to Galilee, in parentheses it says, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. So the question is, why go? If he knows that he was not going to be welcomed in Galilee the same way that he was welcomed in Samaria, then why would he go? Now, let me tell you this. If I was at, you know, like at a church and I guest spoke and people are like, you're the best, you know, like, oh, awesome. Like, and they're laughing at everything, you know, and they're like, oh, and they're crying because like they're being touched by the spirit. And then they're like, now you need to go to this other church. Um, they don't like you that much. And they probably will fall asleep. And they may write you an angry email about the heretical things that you are saying. Um, but can you go? I'd be like, hell no. I ain't going there. You know, dust, dust the dust off my feet. You know, just like, peace out, yo, right? But, but Jesus does. Why? Because the word of God had commanded him. This was the very, very place that God had wanted him to be at this very moment in order to fulfill the prophecies, in order to fulfill the very thing 
that God the Father had appointed him to do. Now, this may sound completely outrageous for many of us because we don't like to head towards comfort, I mean, towards discomfort. We like to head towards the things that are comfortable. Now, just real quickly, I want to share uh, just my moment where I felt um, God was calling me to go to a place where in the eyes of the people around me, in the eyes of what would be deemed successful around the world, would say, what are you doing? You're making the absolute wrong decision. Seven years ago, me and my family felt called to plant a church. First thing, why would you want to plant a church? Second, I was like, I want to go to Texas, right? Because there's Christians there, oh, you know, and good food. Instead, God said, no, go to the Bay Area. I was like, what? Why would I want to go here? Like, it's like the most expensive place in the world. Uh, I had no job lined up. My wife had no job lined up. We had two kids. Our, our second son, Isaac, at the time was only five months old. Uh, we'd have no family up here. And I was like, and people were like, you can't go to the Bay Area. You're not smart enough. You know, and I was like, oh, you're right. I'm not smart enough. And they're like, they're not going to find you funny. You're like, oh, shoot, you're right. They're not going to find me funny. You know, like, and like, it's like, what, what experience do you have? Like, you know, and I was like, you know what? Okay, God, I can't go there. So I really try to go to Texas. Really, I tried to go to Austin. I was like, Austin is kind of weird and cool. They might accept me, and it didn't work out. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll go to Seattle then, you know, because at least, like, there might be some people I know there. And they're like, no, you can't go there either. And I was like, oh, I have to go to the Bay Area. And I was like, and, and, and but the thought was this. In, earthly view, in the earthly view, in a worldly secular view, uh, which oftentimes many Christians, we also have this perception and we also have this acknowledgement or idea of it, is that unless there is some sort of uh, a metric of success that you can for, like kind of at least maybe kind of grasp at, maybe have a, some kind of inkling of hope that is something achievable, something that you can do, that if you go towards something else other than that, then that is ludicrous. Why would you head towards something that in the eyes of all the people around you looks like something where you're headed towards failure, right? So we choose things like uh, finances. We choose things like career. We choose things like comfort. We choose things like, well, are there family or people that are around us? And we ask ourselves, is this fiscally responsible? Is it, is it, is it better for us to go there or stay here? And we put all the different categories and requirements told us by this world and we ask, okay, is it a good decision or a bad decision? Everything in the world would have told Jesus that going back to Galilee was a horrible decision. That he would go back there and ultimately he would be met with people who don't like him. And even his road towards Jerusalem and even his road towards Calvary, people would have said, wait, if you're here to save the world, then why are you going to die on the cross? It would make absolutely zero sense. And yet, he, feel, he chooses to live a life of obedience because he understands that obeying the word of God is more reliable and trustworthy than seeking the things of this world. And so the question that I have for you or, or the application I have for you is this. Really think about how you make your decisions in life. What are the ways in which you weigh on your scale of what should we do, what should we not do? Where should we go, where should we not go? What should we pursue, what should we not pursue? 
if we use the litmus test of this world to make those decisions, then we will always be living contrary to the word of God in our lives. When we live according, when we make those decisions based on the promises and commands that God has for us in scripture, then even when it looks like the most ridiculous decision ever, you will find that God will always prove that the power and reliability of his word is second to none. So let's take a moment to really just kind of pray and reflect upon the word that we spoke, that we heard today. I'm sure many of you are thinking about what that means in your life personally. Perhaps there are big decisions in your life, whether it's career, whether it's relationships, whether it's your children, whether it's your family. It might even just be small things. Um, who knows, like, you know, where do you want to live? Where do you want to go? What do you want to invest your time and money in? But those, all those things and all those decisions come uh, at a time when you can either decide according to your own desire according, or really just decide based on faith on what God has said to you. So take a few moments to respond. Take a few moments to reflect. Take a few moments to pray. And we'll continue on in worship uh, with, with a response song.